What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Pat, how's our old mate Jace going? I hear he's doing fantastic. In fact, he just keeps selling so much dog gear to our loyal listeners at such remarkable prices. What's he got? He's got... Um, <laughs> that's a good question. Oh, he's got everything. Balls, yep. tugs, leashes. I don't think balls and tugs should be said in the same sentence. Well, we just did. Okay. Uh, mills. That's what Jason's pumping out like hot little the potatoes. Firepaw mills. Firepaw, he's HF mills. HF mills, yeah. Yep, he's got them all. Yep. Um, and we've done that mills episode yep. on Patreon, so yep. a lot of people are learning about how to use the mill. Yeah, and getting them from Jason. Getting he them from Jason. sleds now. Sleds and yep. parachutes, I see. Parachutes. That you tested with Remy. Tested the parachute, yep. yep. I can confirm it inflates. I know he still doesn't have a website. I know he does not. <laughs> so if you'd like to buy something from Jason, could be a Herm Springer item. Yeah. Uh, you could get that from Jason, but you have to do it through Facebook and and in order to do that, you have to head to Einswick Dog Quip, which is, how do you spell that? E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K, Einswick. Einswick Dog Quip. Hi, folks. If you're going to be in New South Wales between the 3rd and 5th of May, we have the amazing Mike Suttle coming out to do a grip development and scent detection seminar. For those of you who have done the NDTF elective and you're looking to up your game or if you're doing nose works or part of an agency where scent detection is a huge part of what your program offers, this is a seminar you don't want to miss. Even if you're on the American circuit, you want to catch up with Mike Suttle from Logan House Kennels at some stage. He's one of the greats in this industry, particularly in this field. You won't want to miss it. So hope to see you then. Looking forward to it. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. My name's Glenn Cook and joined in studio is my regular co-host, Pat Stewart. Hello. Guess what? What? We're going to double down on Pat's today. We are. Because all the way from... Are you in Washington, Pat Nolan? I'm in South Carolina. You're in South... in South Carolina. South Carolina. And I haven't even introduced you, but I've already jumped <laughs> to you because it's very exciting. We've got two Pats in the studio today. Double the Pat. And it's very exciting to have you on the show. We've tried this once before. And it didn't go our way, and you were gracious enough to bear with us and wait till we fixed our technical issue and get you back on the show. Welcome all the way from South Carolina, Mr. Pat Nolan. Well, thank you for having me back. I had such a good time the first time. (laughs) Who wouldn't want to do it again? Hey, how good was it that we we were actually chatting at the time? It was like it was sad that it didn't come through the first time, but it was so funny that we were just teeing up to do an interview with you, and we were on Facebook Messenger. messaging backwards and forwards saying we'd love to do an interview you graciously accepted and said yep i'd love to do it with you guys as well and just at the time that we were talking you happened to be in darling harbour enjoying some leave time (laughs) that was something (laughs) what are the odds yeah and when you said the time change i thought well heck that got to be pretty close to where we are and it, it worked out just right we got a face-to-face meeting out of it and had fun. Yeah, the evening. It was yeah. Good. I was, you know, I was literally just a couple of kilometres away from you when that when that happened. I only lived just the other side of the water, so it was a it was a freak, that's for sure. Wow, that's um, great. 
Hey, so we had this awesome conversation. As you know, it, unfortunately, the, the file was corrupted or didn't save or for whatever reason, we couldn't get it to work again. But we had this really cool talk about origin stories. That's what we love to hit on the show. And so if you can, can you tell us again from the start, for people who maybe don't know your full story, but how is it that you came to be someone that really is considered one of the pillars of modern dog training? Wow. <laughs> well, especially that's in scent detection, in scent detection, you're you're to. you've got a an exceptional name. So yeah, we'd love to hear uh, how that all started and where you made your move into the career. Well, thank you. I got out of the army in the United States Army in 1975, and I was in Denver, Colorado, petting a dog. I visiting some friends. I said, you know, I want to get a dog. I miss having a dog when I was in the army. I want to get a dog. He said, go talk to Gary upstairs. Uh, it was a, a house made into two apartments. He said, Gary's starting a guard dog company. So I didn't have any any work at the time, and Gary didn't have any money at the time. <laughs> and, uh, so he food trained me. I'd go in, and I uh, started the next day decoying, and, and we called it agitating at the time, and agitating dogs and taking bites. And then he'd feed me at the, at the end of the day. <laughs> so I... Uh, I was there a couple months and really loved it. It was, I laughingly say it was like dope. But once I did it, I said, man, I have to do more of this. And uh, I spent my time and energy pursuing dog training and understanding of dogs. Uh, I was, when I left the company a couple months later, they gave me a dog and I got more involved with the handling end and doing obedience and did some tracking. And from there, I stumbled into Schutzen Sport. And I was pursuing seminars wherever I could, reading, studying, training, hanging out with people that train dogs. And at a seminar, a Bill Keeler seminar in Allentown, Pennsylvania, I met, met a man, Mike Jones, who is a friend to this day. And Mike and Bill had suggested that you could earn a living training field retrievers, that they, they were all in all, good dogs, good people, and they sent their dogs out for training. And I got a Labrador and started reading books and started training, and they were right on all three counts. They were all in all, good dogs, good people, and, and they sent their dogs out for training. I started training hunting dogs and then worked into local competitions and then into the big field trial circuit. And I ran field trials for many years traveling a field trial circuit. We were on the road seven months a year. And from there, I uh, transitioned into tactical work. But to back up a little bit, when I was the first time I imprinted a, a, a puppy or a, a dog on a target odor, I think was somewhere around 1978. I had read a book by Michael Fox. And I, I'm guessing the date because I had German Shepherds. And somewhere around the 80s, I switched from German Shepherds to Labrador Retrievers. Mm -hmm. And so it, it had to be before 1980. And I read a book published by Michael Fox, the veterinarian, and, and he mentioned proving with anise oil that puppies learned an odor before 19 days. And I got to thinking about that, and I thought, well, heck, if they can learn their mother's odor or anise odor before 19 days, they could learn any odor. And I had a litter of German Shepherds at the time, 
and they were 21 days old. So I couldn't start before then, but I started imprinting odor the very next day. I, uh, I didn't have permits and there wasn't time to get permits and they didn't have the good odor substitutes that we had, target odor substitutes that we have today. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking, what could I use? And there was a health food store in the corner and they had dried raspberry leaves. Now, I'm not sure what they were for, but I chose raspberry leaves not because I thought that it was a substitute for anything, but I was fairly certain it was an odor that my puppies would not encounter in my home except where I put it. Mm -hmm. So it was a unique odor. And I imprinted the litter of pups. And sure enough, they they were alerting to odor in very short time. And we were doing little searches around the house by five and six weeks old. And it was the first time I imprinted an odor. It, it's fascinated me ever since. Pat, just on the raspberry leaf odor and having a unique odor, can you explain to the listeners out there why that's very important? Well, if I imprinted on something that was common in the house, they might be alerting on the odor I trained them on. And I would think they were false alerting because I hadn't put it there if it was a common odor. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and additionally, if it's a common odor that they're used to all the time, it's a little more difficult to imprint. I like to control every time they encounter. I like to control the consequences for the dog every time they encounter a target odor. And if the odor is ubiquitous in the environment, you can't control what happens every time they encounter it. Mm, absolutely. The reason I ask you that question, and um, that was a great answer, by the way, I had a student a while ago, we were doing some basic work for a, a course that we run here in Australia called the NDTF course. And we do a, like a very, very small amount of scent work where students have to search uh, six or more boxes and submit it. And the dog has to find the odor in one of the boxes. I think they have to do three or four runs successfully. And one of the students rang me up and said, look, I'm having a hell of a time doing this. And I said, what's your target odor? And they said, lavender. And I said, I think I know what the problem is going to be is that you'll probably find that your family, if you live at home with your family or somebody in your home is using lavender regularly around the place. And I said, you might even found that you've got it growing around the property as well. And they looked into it and found that some of the odors that they were using to do like clothes washing had lavender scent in there. Mm -hmm. The the lady's mother was using potpourri in one of the drawers and so forth. So the dog was going (laughs) crazy running around the house, indicating on everything and getting told off for it, which was really an oxymoron to what we're trying to do in the the whole behavior. So as you said and pointed out quite eloquently, you've got to make sure that the dog isn't going to run into this odor. It's got to be something unique and, but also available, commonly available, because there was another one just quickly where another student of mine had their uncle or a relative brought in some spice from another country. And they they thought, well, this spice is unique and I wouldn't find it anywhere else. But the problem is, is once they ran out of it, they didn't have access to it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, That's the other thing that, I mean, it is a three part, I guess that's three parts. Yeah. It it can't be common in the environment. It has to be unique and it has to be something that you can, can get more of. I mean, and, and, you know, if it's a one of, you can't continue to train. That's right. That's (laughs) Hey Pat, so that, that idea of, um, 
puppy scent imprinting is sort of common, really commonplace now in, in detection work. Everybody sort of knows the idea of it. And uh, most people who are raising puppies to sell and to, to for work in those roles are, are probably doing it. But it's uh, I just wanted to point out to our listeners that this really goes back to you. Like when you're talking about sort of figuring this out, this wasn't commonplace. This was you were the first person likely or certain that we know of that started doing that. And can you talk about a little bit, so you had that litter of puppies that you did it the first time and you said they were 21 days old. With your next mm-hmm. litter, when did you start and how did you start? Well, I kind of put that odor work on a shelf for a while in, in the imprinting puppies for a while. And then when I started later on to imprint uh, and I purposely wanted to imprint from birth, I would take paper towels that were soaked in a target odor and I would wipe the puppies at birth with the paper towel and I would wipe the mother's breast or, you know, so that Mm -hmm. they would smell when they were nursing. There's also a, there's a little window of time and I know it's at least, I believe it's at least the first 48 hours and it may be the first week when the uh, young mammals, like rats anyway, imprint on their nest the smell of their nest, not just the mother, but the smell of the nest. Mm -hmm. And so that they can find their way home. And during the first week, I blow target odor into the box so that it becomes just deep seated. This is life. And then after that, I wipe the mother down every day, multiple times a day. And uh, I also do something that I, I don't have scientific stuff to back this up, but I believe, and there are there are studies that have proven that humans imprint on an odor when they're nursing and that it has long-lasting change. There have been studies done with mice that have proven that imprinting early in the rat development has long-term changes. So it's not been studied as much in dogs that I know of, but it, you know, we can pull from one animal to the next, one mammal to the next, and, and learn a lot. I blow odor into the box when they're young the first week and then we wipe the mother down. And then there's also, this is another, just a belief, but um, when we, I do the uh, early neurological stimulation and when an animal is stressed, things happen in the body. You know, you put some stress on them, the heartbeat goes up, blood pressure goes up, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess cortisol maybe goes up. And then when you remove the stress, there's this relaxation period. Mm-hmm. When those things all go back down to normal, and then actually they go a little bit below normal, I think, sort of a bounce. And in that relaxation period, that feels really good. So, ah, that feels good. So what I do with my puppies when I do their early neurological stimulation is I, there's like five little different stresses that you put on them for a few seconds each. And after the stress, I wrap them in a paper towel with the target odor. So that Ah. in this relaxation period. As a reward. ah, I like it. Yeah, yeah, they find comfort in that odor. Holy shit. It's soaking it back in and it's making it deeper seated, I believe, because it's associated, again, classical conditioning with this relaxation period. That's a first. Uh, Yeah, I've never heard that that before. That's really interesting. I'm really really intrigued by that. The whole reason I want to imprint before 19 days, and there's not a hard fast, but when the the higher level thinking turns on, you still get classical conditioning and then you can do operant conditioning. But before that, 
I think it's like a lizard part of your brain. It's the deep, deepest part of the brain that just keeps the heart going and stuff like that. Mm. It's below conscious thought. Mm. And if you can make it, I believe if you make an odor association at that deepest, deepest level before conscious thought, I don't think that it's, it's, uh, becomes, you know, part of the animal. It's, they don't fade away from those things. They tend to yeah. drift back to those things because the deepest part of the brain. So that's some really deep then, thinking, Pat. That's impressive. That's uh, that's something that I've never considered or heard before. That's a first for me. Well, I uh, I believe it. I've read a fair amount about it, and I've seen it in the animals in my own experiences. I've imprinted many litters now. Yeah, it makes and sense. When about twenty one days, I start supplementing my puppy's food. And, um, you know, f- supplementing their, their mother's milk mm-hmm. with food. And then I use a, um, I have a, a puppy pan that has, you know, the puppy pans as the raised center. Yep. Yeah, it looks like a hubcap. Uh, yes, we have, we have, a, I have U.S. patent for a device that it blows the odor out over the food while the puppy's eating. Um, yeah, right. So it, uh, again, it associates the food the odor with food. And I used to do that until about seven weeks and uh, then start training at seven weeks. And I I realized that I was wasting a lot of time. And I've, the last few litters, the last couple of years, I've been training. By training, I mean separating odor from reward and placing odor in the environment. And when the puppies move towards the odor, paying them there. Mm-hmm. So training, operant conditioning at starting at, you know, as soon as they can walk kind of in addition to that passive imprinting. And so I enjoy it. It's fun. And I, I learned a lot from them. That's some really technical stuff. That's a, a huge, what's the word? It just your knowledge on that is enormous. Mm-hmm. Um, probably greater than most, I think. Well, Hey, can we go back a little step and you, you were talking before we got into that detection stuff, which is amazing, but we we're talking about your work as a retrieval trainer. Yeah. And the techniques that you were using in that, you said that you were starting in, did you say it was like 1975 you started doing that? Uh, 19, I first started, first time I got paid to train a dog was 75. But the first time I, I started training retrievers about 1980. Right, Okay. And how does that look? Like, what's the process there? Someone sends you, you breed the puppies or someone sends you a puppy uh, that they've selected from another breeder and then you get it ready for competition and hand over to them? Well, it's a, it's, it's sort of multi-leveled. There are people that, that's a, it's a, an active sport in this country where there are amateurs who train and campaign their own dogs. There are also many amateur trainers who use the services of professional retriever trainers to compete in the retriever field trials. You need lands, not just one farm. You need access to multiple farms, multiple ponds. Anymore, you need access to ponds that are made specifically for retriever training. Mm -hmm. And you need to keep birds. You need helpers to throw birds. You need to shoot birds. In this country, because of the seasons, you pretty much need to go south in the winter and north in the summer. That's a legal thing so that you can shoot the birds at those times? No, that's more so that you can continue to train in the water. Right, okay. The water gets – we train in the warm waters and the dogs can 
hunt in very cold water, but training is often hunting is while it's hard work, it's big reward. There's a big mm-hmm. fat shot duck at the end of each retrieve in training. Sometimes you're using plastic and, you know, a bumper instead of a bird mm-hmm. and it's not as rewarding. And then often you're repeating things. You're making technical challenge demands on the animal. And sometimes there's some pressures involved, some correction involved. Mm-hmm. And if you do that in cold water very long, it doesn't take them long to figure out they don't want to be there. Yep. And, and so we, to, to stay in warm water, you need to be cool enough that you can run them on land and warm enough that you can swim them comfortably. And you're kind of chasing a, a spring season the whole time. And, and the field trial circuit follows that season too. So you can continue to compete in the, you know, there are some off seasons, but there's a lot of travel required and a lot of equipment and a lot of, uh, land. So it's a very difficult sport to participate in if you don't use the services of a professional trainer. And many amateurs run their own dogs in the amateur stake and they have a professional run in the open stake, which is open to everybody, professionals and amateurs. Mm-hmm. And and there are many good amateurs who handle in the open stakes too. But in some way, it's like a racehorse owners. Very few of them ride their own horses. Yeah. Uh, they, have, they have jockeys and trainers. And so this is something we spoke about a lot about last time. I'll re-ask the question because I know that other people will be interested is like, where's the money come for that? Like, why is someone sending a dog and paying you to train it in order for them to trial it? Is there, there isn't prize money in it. So why are, why are people outlaying that money? People that stay in the sport very long risk really enjoy the dogs and enjoy their time outdoors yeah. and enjoy that participation and that relationship working with the dog. Most of the owners would come and train. Uh, many of my owners were retired and would spend a lot of time out at training. Mm-hmm. And they have to enjoy that relationship. If you are in the hobby for ribbons, you're probably in the wrong sport. A dog, the top dogs in the country don't finish half the stakes they enter. Yeah. And, uh, and so if you're in it for the ribbons, there are other dog sports where you'll get more ribbons. <laughs> and uh, and easier. if you're... Yeah, and there's no no prize money. Yeah, um, very and, technically challenging sport. Yeah, and so you said that there's uh, amateur and then professional, and professional means that someone else has paid you to train their dog at somewhere else. That so you're not getting paid to compete at that time, correct? Well, you do charge fees to go to the. You know, you charge handling fees. Yep. Professionals charge expenses and then a handling fee. So but you are getting why, paid to be there. But that's but. but yeah, sorry, that's yeah. by uh, your own customer, not by an organization or a board, or there's no prize money for the professional. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. That's just the economy of that is very interesting to me. So you talked about how it's a very technical sport, and there's some elements to the training in that, right? Like in the, the send-away to blind retrieves and, and the scenting then that might be involved. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. The non-slip retriever is what they call the, you know, the AKC retriever field trials. They call it a non-slip retriever. He sits by your side. He or she sits by your side and they watch when you go out and they're tested evenly on land and water and they're tested on marked or birds they see fall. That's called a mark, a bird they see fall. And then blinds, birds they don't see fall. Typically, in the advanced stages, you'll go out and they'll throw three or four birds at various distances from 80 to 400 yards, 500 yards away. Wow. And 
the dog has to watch them all go down, sit quietly by your side. They can't bark. They can't go until you send them. When you send them, they have to go get the bird you sent for, bring it back, and then go get the next bird, bring it back, get the next bird, bring it back. If you leave the hunt of one bird to go for another, it's a failure. If you can't find a bird, and you, if the dog can't find a bird, you have to handle them. It's very often a failure. It is, they're judging relative merits. So if everybody handles, you know, you're just the same as everybody, but typically dogs will get them without handling and they, judges know where dogs don't want to go. So they put the birds in very difficult spots. There's no pattern to it. Every field's different. Every pond's different. The judges just get there in the morning. They look around, they say, well, you know, let's put one over there and one over here and one over there. And, and so there's no, there's no way to pattern train it. You have to teach the dogs skills or concepts that they can apply in new situations and they have to apply them off leash at great distances they have to on under control stop doing things they really want to do and they have to do things that they really rather not be doing Mm -hmm. at great distances very challenging sport and you would have been involved in that sport saying that you you started in the eighties, you would have seen the implementation of the e-collar into that world. Like you would have been training at one point pre e-collar and then seen how that changed the scene a little bit. I was right on the edge of that. When I first came in, there was still discussion about whether you should train with an e-collar or not. It was a Rex car in California was revolutionizing retriever training through his, uh, his e-collar programs. And, he was the first that I know that trained retrievers with an electronic collar and they could push for desired behavior instead of just correcting. Mm -hmm. And when I first came in, there was still discussion whether it was appropriate or not to use e-collars. There were old style guys who corrected the dog other ways. I'm going to share a story and (laughs) I can first let me attest. I have (laughs) never shot. I have never shot a dog in training, but there were, <laughs> that's like, a, how long w- w- did you stop beating your wife? Yeah, no, <laughs> there's no way to answer that. But they, the old style guys understood. I mean, everyone understands to work dogs at great distances, you have to be able to correct them too, mm. or encourage them to do things. So before they had electronic collars, there was a, a common technique was some, you'd hide somebody in the bushes. The dog didn't want to get in the water. The guy would jump out of the bushes and try to scare them into the water. Or they would they would do lesson number nine is what it's called. You with a shotgun, you would and number nine shot, if it was bigger than number nine shot, you might injure them. And so you shoot them between sixty and eighty yards. Any closer than sixty yards you would injure them. Any further than eighty yards you wouldn't hurt them enough to be an effective correction. Jesus. <laughs> lesson number nine is what it was called. And yeah, you'd be in jail today I, for lesson number nine. Oh yes. Yes, you would. <laughs> and uh, and dogs were injured with it sometimes. Mm. Dogs turned around, you know, you you're hollering sit, he doesn't sit. Just at the time the trigger's pulled, the dog turns around. Dogs were injured. And and again, I'm not an advocate of it. I have never done it. But I have seen it applied in training. I was at the, I came in at the tail end of the non-e-collar era, and I have seen dogs spanked with a shotgun at a distance in the field. Again, let me be perfectly clear: I have never done that, and I don't advocate it. Yeah, um, it's crazy to think electron- about the things yeah. that were just commonplace, though, like pre, 
if you need to communicate with a dog at distance, I'll bet to, to someone one day they just went, well, this is the obvious this is the obvious solution. <laughs> <laughs> Electronic collar is so much safer. Yes, and, if you <laughs> and it's adjustable. You're not going to blind anyone. You're not going to put pellets in their hips. Yeah. The uh, old the old X-rays would show little white dots around from from uh, shotgun. Jesus, pellets. it's one of those anomalous things that not so long ago people viewed dogs in a very very different way than what they view them today like the change that i've seen even in the time that i've been involved in training is that dogs were kind of something to fill the backyard i mean people still love them and enjoyed the relationship with their dog of course they did and there's always people who feel differently about animals all throughout history but the common denominator especially in australia was that you know you just fed dogs cheap dog food you didn't really care about you know making it unique or palatable or anything like that it was just a packet of dog food you threw it over the over the fence to the dog it didn't matter whether it was fed in a bowl or not it was quite that was quite the the dumb thing in those days i'd say probably in the last 10 years specifically in the last 10 years things have changed incredibly like there's been a significant shift in the ownership of dogs what you're feeding them how you care for them the training systems you use it's it's been quite a like like a paradigm shift if if you look at it um especially i I think it started around the 90s and it's progressed significantly now yes yes and they uh Again, as you said, you you could get jailed for that today, and no one does that in retriever sports anymore. I mean, it, it just doesn't happen. Everybody uses an e-collar. There's really no discussion of it. I don't mean there's no discussion of it. There's plenty of – I learned a lot from different pros. I made – I had a lot of good friends that I competed against, and you know, it's a funny thing. They would help you during the week. You ask questions. I had good friends. I could ask, you know – Jay, how did you teach a dog to do that? And uh, your dog's much better at that than mine. And how'd you do that? And they'd help you. And then they'd try to beat you on Saturday and Sunday. You know, it was, yeah. uh, it's an interesting dichotomy there. I uh, think that that's great culturally when you, you can, we, we spoke about this with Mike Suttle when he was on recently about yeah. how he goes to great lengths to try and improve the, the competition. So he, you know, he wants to beat you because you have all the same skills, all the same capabilities as him, but he got, he, he was better on the day in the competition, which I think if you can get that in a, just keep raising the bar, right? Yeah. When you get that in dog sports, it's excellent. That's why I like, uh, you know, in the bite sports, I'm really into PSA because Mm -hmm. you, it takes five people to train one dog. Mm. You need (sighs) your whole club is working together to get that, get that done. And then your club helper, your club decoy who, on, th- on Thursday night is helping you train your dog and doing what's necessary to make the dog win is on the weekend putting as much pressure as he can on that dog and, and attempting to to test the dog because we've decided mm-hmm. that's the test there. I think that's a really beautiful thing when you can separate those two things where this is us training together. I want to help you. I want you to be as good as me. I want your dog to do well. And then it's like, this is the test. Fuck you. <laughs> this is, I'm going to make it as hard as the test should be, right? Or as hard as yes, it, it is yes. within the rules. Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a great thing. Uh, great thing. So obviously you're big in food training because you were doing that, imprinting puppies with food, you know, since the 70s. When you started in retriever work, was that common or was it just mostly people using the retrieve itself as a reinforcer? It was mostly using the, the retrieve itself and then birds. And, and really I used food with those puppies, but I, I wasn't a food trainer for many years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used to make fun of food trainers and now I am one. Uh, 
when I when I first started training retrievers, I, I was coming in from an obedience background for the Schutzen, and I had done some AKC obedience and quite a lot of obedience classes. And so I viewed many of the things I need to teach them in the field as, as a command, you know, you need, I need to teach him this mm-hmm. instead of learning, instead of realizing that so much of what he needs to do out there is really a skill that I need to develop and let him learn for himself. But my beginning work I did rather mechanically. I'd place him to sit and a number of times. And then when I tell him to sit, if he didn't, I'd use a leash correction. And when he did sit on command, I'd, I'd pet him. Good boy. Mm-hmm. And I'm very mechanical. Now, I was successful. My dogs were winning, but I was always trying to, I and I was always trying to get better at what I wanted to do. I had a falconry permit. I'd always wanted a hawk as a kid, and I'd flown a number of different hawks, never falcons, but a number of different hawks. And I always try to get more out of the bird. And somewhere around my third or fourth red tail hawk, I had had a wild trapped adult hawk and had been flying, training the bird for two weeks. And I realized this bird was ready to fly free, which was much faster than any bird I'd ever trained before. And I, I took the bird out and I don't know if it was exceptional bird, but some was, I was improving my techniques with every bird, learning from every bird mm-hmm. and learning from my dogs and back and forth. And I tossed him, he flew up in the tree. I called him, he came back, tossed him, he flew up in the tree, called him, he came back, did that a few times. And and I was realized I was ready to hunt him. And I was walking back to put him away. I'd worked a bird in the morning, then go train my dogs. And while I was walking him back, I was feeling so proud and puffed up. And the longer I walked, the worse I felt. And I was walking to put him away in his pen. And I realized that I had dogs in training for two months that wouldn't always come willingly when I called them. Mm-hmm. And, and yet I had a wild animal that would come when I called him off leash in two weeks and I thought you know what have I done that that what have I done that these young dogs that I'm training at that time didn't want to work for me really but that this wild animal would and again let me say I was winning enough that people were sending me dogs and my truck was full I was making my living but I always wanted to do more and some I was blaming things on the dog that was maybe because of me and, and not the dog, you know, he didn't want to train. Maybe it was, wasn't, he wasn't a bad dog. Maybe it was the way I was presenting training. Mm-hmm. And so when I had that realization with the hawk that I needed to do things different, not just get better at the things I was doing, but I needed to fundamentally change the way I was training. It made a huge difference in my retriever and training and, and all my dog and animal training and and put me on a path that, uh, you know, is leading me where I am now and, and still learning more every day. So I that, learned from the hawk. Um, go ahead. That's yeah, a I'm great – that's it. No, no. Please, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I was just going to compliment you and say that's a great question to ask yourself, which a lot of people don't do, is they become – I guess they st- – they get stuck in time a little bit. Like you said, you know, you, you've been successful in what you're doing, so you don't question yourself anymore and you don't look for, you know, what is it that I need to be doing to improve my game still, which leads on to the point that Pat was making before when we were talking to Mike Suttle. I think many people who are involved in training and have a clue what they're doing, they should be regularly asking themselves that question. I believe that's a very poignant question and significant in your career that you need to be looking at 
if something's working so well for for something else, even if it goes against my grain, shouldn't I investigate that? Shouldn't I look at it? Because I think there was a time, not think, I know there was a time where I used to make fun of food training people too and people who use markers in training. I used to think that it was something that a sissy used or it was, I hate to say it, but it was something that girls used in training. But that was ignorance. That was complete ignorance. I was coming from an ignorant place. Uh, I, I can proudly say that now because... I'm very open and aware to that. It was just me being stupid and sh- and shut off and closed off to the significance of important change. And now that I've embraced it, well, I've embraced it some time, but now that I have embraced it and welcomed it into the training program, I can see what an important point in science that it, it really is. And I'm, I think anybody that I've spoken to and listened to and heard speaking implores people to go out and be a little scientific in their training program and and look to constantly evolve in what they're doing you know and this is I, I think this is the important thing about speaking to people like yourself pat is that you've been instrumental in bringing some of these changes forth and you've had such a long and deep history in it that it's important for people like us to realize that you've evolved continually through your training program so really appreciate it well thank you very kind. Very kind. I'll, I'll have a quick uh, turn, Pat, of just blowing some smoke yes, up your ass. Yes, because yes. I, I honestly, this is what I sort of kept harping on about when we were speaking together last time. And, and I really, it's what I want people to get away from, from take away from having listened to you is you're, so many things that so many people are doing now and they just go, oh, well, this is, that's mm. just dog training. That's just how it is. There, there's a start point for that. And a lot of the someone. things, yeah, a lot of those things, especially in the detection work that came from you. Um, wow. That that idea that like there's so many things now that people are just use, it's just common sense. Like, of course, and we can talk about this now. Like I, I have a set of scent tubes that I bought from Mike Suttle that he put together from uh, Lowe's, right? Yes. And- that the first person that did that was probably you, right? I think it was. I made it up. You know, I was trying to imprint working with a litter of puppy. I was puppies. I was trying to find something that could protect the target material from dog slobber and food rewards, and something that would protect the puppy from the target material. And yes, I believe I was the original design. I mean, yes, and you know, <laughs> it's fun to see it in use. In many places, that that is is fun to see. Yeah, so there's people who have made their own version, and it's just mm. it's just what you do. Yeah. Everybody knows you just use a scent tube. That's just <laughs> it, you you see them all over the world. It's yeah, there's variations like Randy yeah. Hare's boxes and yeah, yeah. there's all those things. Tubes and but it all sort of goes back to you. One day, I remember you said last time that when you first were imprinting those puppies, you used like yogurt pots or something the first time. I did. Well, I did. I was hiding there's raspberry leaves in yogurt tubs, uh, little plastic yogurt tubs. That's where I was hiding it, used to hide it around the house. Because you um, had a thing for yogurt at one stage, didn't you? I was eating a lot of yogurt, <laughs> too much yogurt. <laughs> well, you know, I know there are lots of tools that have that that are used to train dogs and and uh, in scent world, and many of them I've, of course, nothing to do with scent boxes, uh, Randy Hare's boxes or the Dutch boxes. But but the tubes, I mean, that that was kind of that was mine, and it's fun to see it standing the test of time, you know. They're, yeah, 
but the I'm good thing is that with the-, the good thing is that ideas have stemmed from that. That's the point: is that it started somewhere and it created an evolution in thinking. I think that's the important thing: is that you know we can we can start to seed an idea and then grow it from there, and then other people can have a variation on that, and that's where we yeah. start to see some significant instrumental breakthroughs in in the technology of of working in scent work. Is or not only just scent work, but obedience work, control work anything that we're we're doing to effectively change the mindset of the dog for the for the better you know like the story that you've been talking about your hawk the realization that you were doing something significantly that a wild animal would change its attitude to wanting to come back to you and then realizing now i need to transfer that over to my dogs because what i've done is I've missed an important and integral step in something that I'm doing in training. I believe that every trainer worth their salt needs to really listen to that point. And in some cases, you might need to go back to your drawing board. I did. I mean, I certainly fundamentally changed. Now, I still, I, I knew before about breaking things down into steps, training with a high degree of success, but it put me on a path and I learned to train in drive. And from there, I learned to the, the use of markers and I had seen a lot of wrong application of food. You can certainly use food wrong, but uh, it's just, it is a tool and used properly. It's a very effective tool. And the use of markers, again, I, I learned that from other people. And I, I like to read and study too. I, I read a lot of research reports that I subscribe to a couple of aggregators and I get lists of published papers and I look through. And if I like the heading, I'll read the abstract. If I like the abstract, I'll read the report. And it clears a lot of stuff out throughout the week. Um, and, uh, and in fact, I just started back at a college class. I st- I'm auditing a class at a local community. It's not a community college. It's a four-year college. I read some research papers that uh, Alliston Reed, R-E-I-D, was publishing. And he, I didn't know it at the time, but he'd worked with a dog named Chaser, a border collie that knew the names of over a thousand uh, objects. Yeah. yeah. And I wanted to see it. He was speaking at a conference I saw. I wanted to go. And then I, I realized, I found out by looking, Googling his papers, published papers, that he was teaching in a college 40 minutes away. So I'm taking his uh, Psychology 300 Learning and Adaptive Behavior course this fall, so, or this cool. spring, and having a lot of fun. He's a great, great instructor and a bright guy. And I'm learning a lot. Pat, so. do you mind me being rude enough to ask how old you are no it's not rude at all i'm 62 years old and golly i'm and you're still getting into it yep i'm surprised that i made it this far (laughs) 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 hey so let's uh, but the point sorry the point i want to make on that is just because you are 62 years old doesn't mean it's the end of your game it's you know like that's exciting for me to know that you're still wrapped up in it and you're enthusiastic and you're out there teaching people but most importantly, that you're still looking at other material to keep adding to the volumes of what you've learned over the period of time that you've been involved in training. I really love that. Like that's something I tip my hat to people is that they they know a lot, but they still realize there's still more to know and there's no harm in going out and learning that as well. Well, yes, I'm a lifelong learner and, and uh, it's a wonderful thing about the dogs. I've never, you know, you never run out of something to learn. And yeah. And learning and training is, uh, as, a, as a man told me one time, training is a dynamic situation. <laughs> yeah. mm. 
he was making fun of me at the time. I was confounded <laughs> with some advice we were getting. <laughs> he said, Pat, training is a dynamic situation. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Hey, we, we, so, um, we're regularly accused of bouncing around when we tell stories, and, and we've certainly done that now. So can I go back to sure. uh, how did you finish up the retriever training? How, why, and um, what was the catalyst to move on to the next thing? Well, I have five children and and now 10 grandchildren. But at, at the time, I had four children and we were homeschooling our kids. I say we, I was more like the principal. My wife, <laughs> Cindy at the time, was doing all the instruction. And uh, we were moving several times a year. I, we would move from Maryland to South Carolina, move the whole family. We'd stay three months. And in the spring, we'd move the whole family back to Maryland. In the summer, we would move to Canada or Vermont. And then in the fall, we'd move back to Maryland. And it was, you know, that's a lot of work mm. on the family, hard on the family, a lot of work for my wife. And I, I was trying to figure out a way to stay home from trials. I was hiring assistants, and I had a good fellow working for me, Andy Gallagher. And he had worked for some other pros, Pat Burns and Mary Lake, and Andy was a talented trainer. And he was, my assistant at the time was working for me. And I tried to stay home and send Andy out to the trials. And that worked for about a year, worked well, but I really couldn't not make those big trips. So even though I wasn't running on the weekends, I was still going south in the winter and summers going north. When uh, I'd really been wrestling, I felt impressed that my family was paying too big a price for work that I just, I mean, I loved it, but you know, I thought they were paying too big a price. And my uh, friend from South Carolina, we just moved down from South, from Maryland to, uh, in January to South Carolina. A local friend stopped by to visit and he was all excited and told me his wife was pregnant. And, and uh, after he left, he was a, a young fella. I wasn't a young fella at the time. I was 43. After he left, I, I went, I was cleaning at the kennel, getting ready to go out training. And I I went up and told my wife that uh, Jr. and his wife were pregnant, and she said, so are we, <laughs> so, with our fifth child. So it was kind of a catalyst. It was a lot of little things. I had been working trying to get off the trial circuit, and uh, my wife had had some health issues, and I just realized that you know I needed to, to get out. So I, I, didn't do it very, I didn't do it a smart way. Um, in that it was, I didn't have a big plan. I didn't have, uh, a jump to anything. I just knew I needed to stop what I was doing. And we thought about it and I wrote a letter to all my clients and thanked them for their, for the wonderful support and the great time I'd had and to thank them for the opportunity to work for them. And that I was going to quit training the field trial dogs and that Andy, my assistant, he was going out on his own. So I rented him my house in South Carolina, house in Kennel, sold him my truck. Most of my field trial clients went with him. And I stayed in Maryland and tried to figure out what was I if I wasn't a retriever trainer. Mm. And I finished a bachelor's degree. I, I, I knew I needed to learn to express myself better on paper. I still struggle with writing, but I, I've been published in uh, magazines and in print since then. And I was experimenting, doing lots of trick training, 
uh, I was doing some demonstration work for Daltra. They'd hired me to, to do some demonstration work and do some trade shows. And so I was training tricks to a dog so I could generate interest at the booth. And uh, I was on discussion boards on the Internet. I was trying to figure out how people earned a living with dogs at that time. You know, how do other people make a living if they're not retriever trainers? How do you make a living? And I got a call from the Air Force. They were looking for help on a project, uh, a group. And that was, uh, I guess that was 11, 12 years ago, maybe now. And it was the first time I did any work for the military. And uh, I was, it was really frustrated. Let me back up. I was frustrated that I had made such a big change, a drastic change. that I really felt led to do it. And, and it was the right thing. But I was a little scared, too. I said, you know, I, I was 43, 44 years old. And I said, I don't have 30 years to get good at something. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and thinking that it had taken me 30 years to figure out something about retriever training. And, and when I quit, I was, we were winning trials and we had good clients and there was no, it wasn't like an economic problem or a decision. It was, uh, or a, you know, a down, you know, it wasn't that things weren't going well. Mm-hmm. It just, again, I didn't think it was right for my family anymore. So, you know, I was struggling. What am I going to do? And uh, I was frustrated that I'd spent so many years learning and getting good at some things. And during that time, I was imprinting puppies every morning, every morning. I had done imprinting retriever puppies on directional work for, I guess, 20 or 30 years now. And when I stopped running trials, I started imprinting on target odors right away and was up every morning imprinting puppies and uh, fooling around. Anyway, that's how I got the, the Air Force project took me into the tactical world. And it seems that my skills weren't wasted, that time wasn't wasted, that everything that I knew about working dogs at great distances and giving dogs directional commands uh, was, a needed, was needed by the military at the time. Can you, can you tell us a story about what, what the Air Force, the proposition they came to you with, what they, and the time frame they wanted? Yes, they called and said that they had been asking around and some people had pointed them towards me. And they, they asked me if I could train a dog to put a package on a target from 100 meters away. And if I could do that, how much would it cost them and how long would it take me? And I had an adult dog that already did directionals. And I had, one of the tricks I taught her was to put things in the trash can. You know, like at the, at the shows, I would drink something and then accidentally knock a bottle on the floor and say, hey, throw that away for me. And she'd grab it and go put it in the trash. Nice. So when they asked, how much would it cost? How long would it take? I said, well, if you just want to see, it won't cost you anything and I can show you tomorrow. <laughs> so um, <laughs> so we, they were in Ohio. I was in Maryland. They couldn't come. So we went out and filmed. I put my, my brother-in-law was working for me at the time and we put him out about 50 yards or so. And 50 yards beyond him, we put a five-gallon bucket. I put a training tug or bumper in the dog's mouth, sent her on a, you know, handled her, gave her directions. She ran out to the bucket. I told her to put it in the bucket. She dropped it in the bucket and came home. We sent the video to the guys, and uh, I got the job. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I, that's really cool. I love that comeback. Well, tomorrow. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> just the right set of circumstances, right? You taught all the right skills. Yes, yes. And then that's led to a lot of what you're doing today, which we, we probably can't go into in any great detail, but that is doing dog work for Tier 1 Special Forces units uh, in the U.S. Yes, and been very fortunate to contribute U.S. Special Forces community and to to our allies in Europe. And uh, it's been an honor and a privilege to contribute in some small way Mm -hmm. to the mission. Yeah. We spoke about that last time. I think it's really cool, you know, you're in the Army yourself, when you're not in anymore, to know that you're... Still can contribute. Yeah, you're you're still in a way in the fight by providing you know whatever skills that you do have, specialist skills, and passing those on to guys. That's it's a hugely satisfying thing that I think a lot of people probably don't um, maybe don't understand, especially not having been in the army. You know, like it's more than a job. It's it's so satisfying. I think anyway. I think you'd probably agree. Oh yes, yes. And uh, actually, I wasn't a warrior when I was in the army. I was a bit of a goof off and. I had a, uh, a medical MOS. I was a health inspector. So yeah, right. I was, <laughs> I was, uh, I, and I was a bit of a goof off, but, uh, if I had it to do over, I'd do it differently, but it is a great honor and a privilege to contribute. Uh, Pat, so, yeah. so that's where you're at today. Um, Tell us a bit about, unfortunately, Connie's not with us now, but when we spoke to you guys face-to-face, she was there, and she had some really amazing things to say about her training and, and where she's at. Can you tell us a bit about what she does? Yes. Uh, Connie has a well-established kennel here in South Carolina, and we our home is here on the property. The, the kennel, they do board and train for companion dogs. They offer obedience classes during the evening for pets and also for competition dogs. Connie has, uh, I think there's been six dogs in this country that have gotten an obedience trial championship and a retriever trial championship. You know, that, that combination, mm-hmm. there's been six dogs. Connie trained five of them. Wow. And it's quite a feat to, to be able to do both sports, they both take so much time and dedication. Mm-hmm. And to do both sports on the same animal is both titles on the same animals is extremely difficult. So she's a very bright trainer. That's how we met 20 years ago. Again, I was married to Cindy, and we were Connie and I were friends. We met at Field Trials, and we were friends. Uh, she brought a puppy to me for collar conditioning because she was she had a young dog that needed some e collar work, and she had trained older dogs, but she had never trained a dog as young as she needed to do that one because of some, it just was a wild one, wild Indian kind of a dog. And she knew I was doing collar work with younger animals. Um, so we became friends. It was when we shared ideas back and forth. My wife, Cindy, got sick with uh, Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS mm-hmm. and, and died a number of years ago, four years ago. I'm oh, sorry to hear that. Well, thank you. And after she died, you know, it was a great loss. And and I thought I'd never love another woman. Sometime later, I I sobered up and I I realized who would have me. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, but Connie has a, uh, so we have a wonderful relationship built on a friendship first. But her business, they train they train dogs, service dogs for handicapped people, open doors, retrieve things for people in wheelchairs. They train 
uh, service dogs, uh, emotional support dogs. They've done some diabetic dogs, diabetic alert dogs, but I don't think they plan to do any more. Um, but a lot of service dog work, a lot of competition obedience work. And Connie teaches 10 seminars a year on competition obedience. Nice. And uh, very bright trainer. When we were speaking last time, she said something that I, it's one of the reasons I was so devastated that that conversation didn't come out. She said something about e-collars. I don't know if you remember exactly what she said about how they were perhaps one of the tools that was responsible for increasing the well-being of dogs, especially in the retrieval world. Do you remember what she said? Well, for a start, they don't have to shoot them with a well, nine. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's kind of where I'm going with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the modern electronic collars are very reliable and they are so adjustable. You can match the intensity setting of the collar to the dog's drive state and the distraction of the environment. You can adjust that immediately in the, in your hand in the transmitter when the dog is at great distance. Mm. It's a very sophisticated tool. And used properly, you can communicate what you want. You can communicate what you don't want without overwhelming the dog, without underwhelming him, without teaching him to put up with pressure. It's a it's really advanced to retriever sports. They're they're much more technical, challenging, you know. You go between a man, he's sitting in a chair 20 feet away from a crate to run between the man and the crate 250 yards away without undue stress on the dog and without mm -hmm. the dog going out of control. I mean, it's, it's an incredible tool and it, and it has improved the training and provided a lot of freedom to a lot of dogs. Yeah. I believe in our country. I think what's worth noting there, Pat, and I think, again, this was part of our original conversation when we were in Darling Harbour together, was that what a lot of people who are new to remote trainer collars or electric collars or e-collars or whatever you want to call them is that the old style collar used to have big resistors on them that you had to change by hand. So you've probably seen them since their, their induction into the training world, but my introduction with them uh, to them was the old Tritronics ones that used to have a big barrel full of batteries um, mm -hmm. with, with hand resistors that you actually had to change. So you had different color resistors that you had to change on the actual collar unit and their transmitter itself. So, I mean, your dog didn't really have a lot of play with what level of stim it got. It just either got something incredibly hard or something incredibly soft. And it was very, very hard to gauge in between. Whereas the technology that you've just been describing now is so incremental that it can go from barely nothing. Like, I mean, if you feel a remote trainer these days on its, on its lowest settings up to about, let's say, level 10 or 11, you can barely feel it, if any at all. And then incrementally, you can start feeling a little pressure that goes up and up and up from there. So, I mean, yes, for people yes. who are concerned about remote trainers and have this massive stigma about them, you can feel more pressure and more pull from a leather flat collar used mildly than you can on a remote trainer used in low settings. Yes, that's correct. And Glenn, I, I'll go back even further. I think the first e-collar I got was somewhere around 78 or 79, and it had one button. It was red. And, and when you pushed it, the dog said, the only thing it was good for was correction. There was no adjustment on the transmitter or the collar. When you got to the resistors, the different colored plugs that you put in, that was a big improvement. That was a big step in the right direction. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's when the, the change. Well, that was my introduction to collars. And then I remember the first time I saw it, um, I think it was the Inner Tech collars. 
that was the that was the first introduction I saw to ones that actually had like a remote dial on them, and I thought, wow, that is actually leagues above what I'm used to seeing in remote trainers, and it really changed the landscape in using remote trainers in in controlling dogs and the different applications that you could do, even in the Napo Post style of work that you can introduce to dogs these days. It's just leagues above what I was introduced to in the early days. Yes, they're incredible tools. I think e-collars can be a little bit of a, t- a taboo subject and that's why I, I do like to bring it up as often as possible when we have the likes of yourself on the show, people who are known and do really excellent work with the e-collar and, and can show that they're motivating a dog with a collar and that there's no stress, un- well, there's no undue stress and that they're yeah. really just communicating with the dog via a, a tactile command that they can give at distance. And so, you know, people like yourself, we've had Bart Bellin on the show who, you know, is a huge mentor to, to me and many, many others in the use of the collar as an activation tool while reserving the right to use it as a, as a punishment tool, as well as, you know, Michael Ellis, and Larry, uh, Larry Crone. Crone people. So I, I feel like it's always important to, even though some people, uh, especially, you know, we're, we're talking in a state right now where e-collars are illegal. Mm. And so it's important to put that out there so that people who maybe listen, we have listeners from all over the world and in all different walks of life. And maybe if you have an opposition to this stuff, that the problem is there's loads of video out there of people either poorly using an e-collar and thinking they're doing a good job or people who are poorly representing intentionally misrepresenting the use of an e-collar or maybe even not intentionally because they don't understand it themselves. But I like to bring it up when there's people like yourself and Connie. And like we said, we had, we've had Bart Bellin who, you know, is the cornerstone in my opinion in a lot of e-collar work and and yourself and Larry Crone, who's very open about his use of the e-collar. Michael Ellis, the same. I think that it's so important that we do discuss that and we do say, Hey, here's an example of someone with an online presence that you can go and check out how happy, how motivated his dog is and, and understand that this is a, a, a tool for communication. Yeah, it, it's an incredible tool. And unfortunately, there's so much emotion in some of the anti-e-collar people mm. that there's no way to have a dialogue with some of them. Now, some people are open to dialogue and they're open to learning. I had somebody that happened to look at one of my YouTube videos and he, we put this glowing review, you know, oh, this is wonderful. This is so people should see this training. Do you have books available? This is just great. What a wonderful relationship. Fifteen minutes later, he saw another video and he went crazy because he saw I had an e-collar. <laughs> oh, you're a monster. You sh- no wonder your dog does listens to you. She's too afraid to do anything and you should be banned from having an animal and yada, yada. Now. I started to save both of those comments and show the timestamps and compare the videos and say, look, the guy's looking at the exact same work, Mm. but here he sees no collar and I'm wonderful. Here he sees an e-collar and I'm a monster, Mm. but I don't want to poke that hornet's nest and have him and 20 of his best friends make it their life story to make my life unpleasant. So I just banned the guy and deleted his comment and yep. uh, I'm not I'm not interested in that discussion. Yeah, I think that's the right there's move. there's no way. I've said and I maintain regularly that if you look for ugly in anything you'll find it. Yeah, there's no way to change his mind and you know, I've got better things to do than to fight with that. I'm not interested in arguing. I share what works for me, but I have no interest in arguing about it. Yeah. yeah. And I think that but as I say, I just think it's important that we 
as host of the show, point out the people who are doing a fantastic job and have been for a very long time. There's a huge body of work, as you said, out there where people can see highly motivational stuff and they can attend. You say Connie does 10 seminars a year. They can attend the, that training and they can learn it for themselves. There's plenty of people teaching it. Um, and it's worth coming on board and using that tool correctly. Even if you're – like I like to point out to people who – Maybe you're anti-e-collar. Maybe we'll, you know, swallow your pride for a weekend and attend a seminar and and maybe be convinced. You know, don't go there to argue, but maybe go there to see the the a blank slate. Yeah, go to mm. see from a sure. different perspective. It's it. You yeah. know, we've we've commonly talked about the use of tools in anything, and I mean, you can use a hammer to build a beautiful house, so you can use it to murder a group of people. You know, I yeah. mean, that same tool can be used poorly by either the same person or or different people. And that's what the application in using remote trainers has got to be. I think people have got to understand that it's the person pulling the trigger on the end of anything that that's causing the problem, not the tool itself. Mm. You can't. There's that's, no point in blaming right. the tool when when you've got tacticians who use it so well and so beneficially. They forget that the welfare of a lot of these animals are at stake just for being alive. Whereas some of these tools can um, serve a great benefit in, in keeping them in homes and keeping communication between people and not creating this ridiculous fear state that they keep using as it seems to be this myopic mantra that people use constantly when they're discussing their side of the story. But as Pat Stewart said it well before, where he said, why don't you go out as a blank slate? Why don't you go and spend some time with these people and look at it? And you might say, well, look, I appreciate it now. I still wouldn't use one myself or I might change my opinion on that, but at least I have correct information rather than just imitating what somebody else is saying and it becomes a, again, part of a mantra of a group. I have no facts, no storyline, no basis or credibility on it, but it just sounded like a highly emotive story that somebody else has told and I'm just going to jump on the bandwagon and join them. Yeah, And I have to shamefully say that I was one of those people at one stage because I've had stigmas against prong collars and remote trainers and everything else before. I was very, very much against the use of them when it was first introduced until I educated myself on the use of them, until I saw the benefit and how well I could actually communicate with the animal that I was doing the training with. And regardless of people's stigma and their emotion and their feeling towards it, the only reason I changed my mind is because I actually saw how it how well it communicated to the dog and the benefits that I was gaining. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful tool and and it's it's the application of the tool and not the tool that's a is a problem and, yeah. and there's so much good that comes from that. Mm. All right, hey Pat, thanks for making the time for us once again. Well, it's been great fun, guys, and we'll have to do it again in Australia someday. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like, uh, if you are in Australia at any stage and you're in New South Wales, please let's make some time to hang out. I'd love to chat more with you and catch up and uh, have a coffee or a beer or whatever floats your boat. You betcha. I'd love to train dogs with you all. Absolutely. Hey, it is an honor to be uh, – thanks for having me on. The honour is all man. ours. Thank you very much, and and especially considering that we um <laughs> we messed up the first one. It was great to meet you and Connie in person. It's always good to speak to someone like you, Pat. It really is a, an honour and a privilege for us. Hey, Thanks. Pat, before you go, tell us how um, how can people get in contact with you? And I know Connie has an online program. So, what are the details for all of that stuff? Wonderful. Thank you. I have a business website, Tactical Directional Canine. But I have a personal blog that posts links to everything we're doing and we're commenting and putting up stuff regularly as patnolan.com, P-A-T-N-O-L-A-N.com. 
and you can we're going to be posting more continually so you can reach me there connie's is onlineobediencetraining.com and dogtrainersworkshop.com perfect and she's got online content there and i think we're talking about she does like live webinars and that sort of thing right Connie's been doing webinars for a couple of years now. Connie and I did a webinar together on the use of reward markers and conditioning and how to use them in application. We are working now on a webinar for e-collars and in a course on using e-collars for obedience and field. Mm-hmm. And she has a number of, of online programs uh, for competition, for pet dogs, force fetch, and the next one coming up is going to be an any color course. Awesome. So, and are you reading any okay. good books at the moment, Pat? Yes. An Introduction to Learning and Behavior. It's a textbook. I can't think of the, the uh, author's name. But if you haven't read it, here's one that, that I love and I go back to regularly. If you haven't read it, it's by the author's last name is Lind. And it's called The Compass of Pleasure, How Our Brain Turns... And there's a long subtitle, like how our brain turns fatty foods, orgasm, marijuana, and gambling into pleasure. It's a real long subtitle. Sounds like everything I'm into. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) The the guy, Linden, is a neurobiologist, and he talks about how things are recorded as pleasurable and how it affects our behavior very interesting read. The Compass of Pleasure. If you haven't read it, that's a good one. Okay, um, cool. Awesome. And, and again, I'm reading right now the textbook for this course, but I Introduction to Learning and Behavior, but I don't know who wrote it at the moment. Cool. Can't get to it. But. Before we wind up, if you can just stick around quickly, I just want to ask you really something real quick at the end of the show. And sure. um, I think we're just about to say goodbye. Yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to bring out, I should have I should have asked this earlier. I was thinking about it and I, I forgot to come back to it. Let me, but I, I'm going to regret if I don't ask this. So it's totally out of sequence. And for everybody that gets upset at me for doing this, well, <laughs> at least we're getting the knowledge. Um, we're led to it's our show. The, the stuff you're doing now, Pat, a, a fusion of everything that you've sort of developed over your career, that puppy imprinting, and now your work with the highest level of special forces and their dogs in the world. Do you find the carryover for a dog, and do you work in this space as much as you can talk about it, a dog that really likes to bite people, you know, like we're talking about the, the types of dogs that those units have for their man work, mm-hmm. do you see the success of imprinting those puppies on target odor from day one in a circumstance where they'll give up the idea of a known bite in order to indicate on that target odor. Do you see that that success? And do you think that is something that is possible or likely to be able to be trained into a dog if they're not imprinted from birth? I think that if I understand correctly, that the need for the dog to be able to switch from hunting for a man to switch for hunting for explosives. There is a real need for that. Yeah, but without command. Without command. So uh, here's here's an example. I had a friend of mine on exchange uh, with a different unit and their dog in Iraq was pursuing a guy in order to bite him. He was fleeing, he went into a building and when they went into the building, the dog had stopped on the stairs and the guy was at the top of the stairs agitating the dog essentially, trying to provide it a live bite. And the dog was refusing that live bite to indicate on an on an IED he knew was on the stairs. And I thought, wow. when I heard that story, I thought that is fucking amazing. And I thought that I honestly, I, I wish I was there to see it my own eyes, but the guy who told me about it wouldn't, he wouldn't make it up. Sure. 
And I, he said that that dog had been imprinted from birth on explosive odor and that he was wow. convinced that that was the only reason that could happen. And obviously they trained that picture and they'd shown the dog that. And, and I'm sure that in training there was, you know, all the, all the checks and balances to limit the dog's access to the live bite or in training the decoy, but that the dog made the decision and, and it ultimately saved his entire team's life because they, they literally were being led into an ambush. Yeah. Wow. Have you ever seen work like that? And do you think that that is just a result of that dog being imprinted from birth? Well, it wouldn't hurt. It was certainly, it would help, but there are plenty of dogs that would be everything you would do correctly in imprinting and training that still couldn't make that decision. Mm -hmm. There'd be dogs that you do imprinting and training and get washed out before then. And that's a, a degree of, responsibility that uh, it's an, an amazing thing for the animal to recognize mm. to choose the one over the other because certainly biting a man is is more rewarding than most times than getting a ball for most of the dogs in that situation and very difficult training and uh, i know that it, i believe deep down inside i believe that the early imprinting helped is it possible without the early imprinting i, I think it probably is mm. i do believe that there are lots of great dogs out there that don't have that early imprinting. But on the other hand, I believe that every dog is better with that. Every individual dog is better with that early work. Yeah. Yeah. It's you know, the, the bike dogs that, that they're selecting out of Holland, those, those dogs are, you know, they're on a chain staked out at the club at seven weeks. They're imprinted on yeah. bite to bite work from, from growing up. They speak it as a native language. Mm -hmm. They don't acquire it later in life and have a big, heavy accent. That's a native language bite work and, and, and detection should be too. Yeah, for sure. You know, that's the future I think of dog work in the forces as well. I'm always saying to the, the guys I deal with in the army and, and still talk to from my old unit, like there's rarely, there's precious few people in the world who are better at, at, at killing people. You don't need that help from a dog. What you need, the help you need from a dog is doing th dog things that you can't do, smelling explosives. Stop your and, unit getting blown up. Yeah, smelling explosives and finding that bad guy <laughs> so that you can interdict him. Like at the end of the day, that he, the dog bites is nice. That's that's great. That's a big help. Yeah. But you're, you, you guys have spent your yeah. life pink developing the skills that oh, you can do that way better than the dog. Yeah. Use that dog for dog things. Yeah. They are amazing animals. Well, thanks, Pat. We're, I've, I've bounced us all over the place uh, over the last hour and a half, but, uh, but it's been a fun conversation. I really appreciate you making yeah. the time yeah, for us, Yeah, absolutely. Mate. One of hey, the more cerebral um, ones that we've had, but we've had some fantastic guests on the show, but some of the gems that you've dropped on us today have just been absolutely fantastic. It's given me something to think about. That story of the hawk, really, uh, I'm going to be thinking about that for a long time. And, and, a, and the blanket, wrapping the dog in the scented blanket. Yeah. Mm. Awesome. All right. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks a bunch. Thank you. Take care. Okay, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe from whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is via Patreon. We, uh, the, the Canine Paradigm on Patreon, three bucks a month gets you access to an educational episode. Ten bucks a month is a live Q&A with me. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is via uh, email now. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com or you can hit us old school on Facebook. That's it. Glenn, music. Music.